But friends, a building is a means to an end. Uh, a name is a means to an end, right? There's only one name above all names, and there's only one reason we meet. And the church is a means to the end of the mission of the church. So we're excited, not for our own sake, but because we know these sorts of things will draw people in who might have otherwise not been sure who we were or whether we were going to stick around. This is a chance to really put ourselves out in front of the public as a church that's here and here to stay with something to offer that you might not find in other churches. And it's not a competition. That is to say, I'm not looking to see other churches shrinking because of us or comparing us to other churches. But I will say this. I am unapologetic about sheep stealing. We are sheep stealers. And by that I mean that the command Christ gave Peter was that if you love me, feed my sheep. And the feeding in that context refers to teaching them the Bible, teaching them the Word of God. If you love Christ, teaches people the Word of God. We take that seriously. We take that so seriously, we called ourselves verse-by-verse fellowship. So I know, and you know this too, that there are places that you can go in this city, churches, where people are not taught the Bible. And I'm not going to name any, and I don't want you to either. That's not the point. But we know they're out there, right? And there are children of God, there are believers in those buildings. And they're not getting the Word of God, which means they're not being loved. Not in the way they're supposed to, not in that sense. And we believe they should be loved by the teaching of God's Word, among other ways. And as a result, we, we put this church together. So what I'm saying is this. If we thought we needed another church, then we shouldn't be apologizing for why we thought we needed it. We needed a church that would teach people the Bible. So I am unapologetically a sheep stealer. Anyone who does not feel like they're getting fed the Word of God wherever they are, please come here. That's our message. And to the unbeliever, obviously, we want them to come get to know Jesus in His Word. And I encourage you in kind and generous, gracious ways to let others you know who are maybe out there in one of those places, let them know about us. You don't have to talk about what they don't have. Just talk about what you do have. And let them come and see it for themselves. The Lord will tell them where they're supposed to be, but we know there are those out there who are missing what they should have, and we won't offer it. So this building, all the signs, all the other stuff, what is it all about? It's about creating a place in San Antonio where the Bible will be taught every week and hopefully in the right way. Because we know when you teach the Bible, good things happen. And that's what we're here about. Speaking of which, how about we do some good things? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the Bible, for your word, the lamp that it is to our feet as we walk in this life, the truth, the plumb line that we can use in directing the affairs of our life to please you, the power that it has, Father, to change hearts, the encouragement that it is to those who are lost in darkness, the the strength that it gives us to stand up to the enemy and to his schemes and to the world that does not know you, and the love, Father, that it represents that you would condescend to reveal yourself to us. All of those things and more, Father, we find here, and we thank you for the privilege that it is to sit at your feet And to hear you speak to each of us, though the words might come out of my mouth, Father, I know so well that they are yours. To the extent they reflect the truth of this word, Father, they come only from you. And when and if they may depart from the truth, Father, they are mine alone. And as a result, no one will remember them. We thank you, Father, for the power that you have in preaching through those who serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So something familiar tonight, something new. The familiar comes first, and it takes us back to the beginning of the section when I taught on the feeding of the 5,000 earlier in chapter 14. I want you to go back just briefly, look up the page, verse 14 of chapter 14. Remember this verse? It said, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Now, you may remember from a week or two ago when we covered this verse, I explained that that this moment there in verse 14 is actually an exception to a rule, to a general pattern that is now in effect since chapter 12. Since chapter 12, the religious leaders of Israel have rejected Jesus' claims to being Messiah. And when they did that, you remember, they committed the unpardonable sin. And as a result, Jesus withdrew the offer of the kingdom from that generation of Israel. And he stopped teaching openly to the crowds. And he stopped healing the masses without condition. From now on, since chapter 12, Jesus only teaches his disciples and he only heals those who demonstrate faith first as a prerequisite. When we saw chapter 14, verse 14, though, I told you there are exceptions to this no healing of the masses rule. And 14 was one of those exceptions. That on occasion, when he sees a need and he acts out of the compassion of his heart, he may still heal a crowd without requiring faith first. But that is the exception. That's what we saw in verse 14. But now as we leave 14, what Matthew does at the very end here is he reminds us that the pattern, the standard process, is still in effect. That it's not exceptions everywhere. And look at verse 34. That's where we pick up. After the miracle of Jesus walking on water, we read this. When they had crossed over, they came to the land... At Gennesaret. And, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all of the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Now, let me just put you back in the moment that this is the day after they've crossed the Sea of Galilee. And actually, I think it may be a few days later than that, because if they spent all night trying to cross that body of water and reach Capernaum, I'm guessing that they probably took at least a day to recuperate, to get a little sleep, to catch up again. But sooner or later, they start moving again on foot. And they move south, down the western side, to the Jewish side, remember, of the Sea of Galilee. Until they come from Capernaum, just a short distance south, to a little fishing village called Gennesaret. That village still exists today. It's just not called Gennesaret anymore. It's called Gennesor. And in Gennesor, they have a dock where tourists get on those little boats that you can ride around the Sea of Galilee on. Uh, There's also a kibbutz there. And anyway, in that region, Jesus and the disciples enter, and we're told that the men of the town recognize him. They see the man, Jesus, coming, and they know who he is. That tells you how well-known Jesus was at this point in his ministry. And as he comes into that area, the word starts to spread. Jesus is here, which means only one thing. I can get healing, or so that's what they think. And there is soon a crowd of people flooding into that area to find Jesus. Because you're living in a time in which sickness was a way of life for a lot of people. And so if you had the opportunity to obtain relief, it was worth dropping everything to go seek for it. So here they come to Jesus for healing. But notice how it happens in this case. Matthew says in verse 36, the people implored Jesus to allow them to just touch his garment. Now, the word implored, it literally means to beg. So we have people begging Jesus, can I just touch your cloak? to get healed. What that's telling you is Jesus is withholding his healing. That's a way of us understanding 
that the people are trying to find some way to get the healing that they thought Jesus would offer, but it's not happening easily. He's not just handing it out freely like he did back in verse 14. Why? Because he's waiting for a demonstration of faith as part of that new pattern. And in an effort to persuade him, someone in the crowd has this bright idea. They say, can I just touch the fringe of your cloak in order to be healed? And he allows their request, we find out, and as many as those who touch his garment, they're all healed. Now, where did this come from? It, it kind of sounds superstitious, doesn't it? It sounds kind of strange. And, and so if it is, why did Jesus even allow it? And then the real question is, why were they getting healed when they touched his garment? Well, the answer here is faith. The answer is faith. Those who were reaching out for the hem of Jesus' garment were doing so in faith that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's do a little background first. In Jesus' day, people, men generally, wore two garments, more or less. They would wear an inner tunic, and you might think of it like underwear in a sense, just a very lightweight tunic that would hang down on the body. Then over that, they wore an outer garment, over that tunic, which would be the part that everyone saw, that outer garment is called a talit. And a talit is something that the Jews were told in their law by God how to make. Let me just read you a brief passage. Numbers 15, verse 37. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation. And they shall put... On the tassel of each corner, a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them, and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. So the Lord told Israel that they were to take that outer garment, the tallit, and that they were to put on the hem of it these tassels, knotted cords, that would hang off of the hem of that outer garment. And as Jews came to do this, they, they followed a tradition of putting five knots in each of those cords, or those sisiot, they're called. And those five knots each represented one of the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that was the tradition, and God started that for Israel, or commanded that for Israel in Numbers. Now, over time, that thing that hung off of the hem of the outer garment, that tassel, as we might call it, it became a very important symbol in Jewish society. In fact, it came to represent the person's character. There are examples in archaeology of ancient clay tablets that have been discovered in which the signature that the individual put on the clay tablet was an impression of the tassels from their garment. It was kind of their, their mark. And cutting off the hem of a, of a tablet, cutting off tassels on it, if you did that, it was considered personal disgrace to the individual. Under rabbinical law, for example, a man could divorce his wife just by cutting off the hem of her tallit. Or if you remember in 1 Samuel 24, remember David's hiding in the cave and Saul is in the cave and David comes up quietly behind him and cuts off the hem of his garment. He was disgracing. He was essentially humiliating Saul by doing that. That was the whole point. And the Old Testament prophet Malachi tells us that there was one particular significance to the tallit in the case of the Messiah. He says this in Malachi 4.1, Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. 
and you will go forth and skip like calves from the stall. So Malachi says in verse 2 of chapter 4 that there will be a son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. Now the phrase son of righteousness, now if you're not looking in the Bible at this moment to Malachi, you might think I'm saying S-O-N, son of righteousness, but it's not. It's S-U-N. It's S-U-N. In Hebrew, it's literally sun as in the sun in the sky. But it's ironic because it is a reference to the Son of God. It is a euphemism for the rising of the Messiah, the appearing of the Messiah, the rising of the sun, so to speak. And the fact that sun and sun sound alike in English is just happenstance. It's not significant here. The point is, Malachi is telling us that when the Messiah comes, when the Son of Righteousness rises, he says he will have healing in his wings. Now, wing is another euphemism in Hebrew. It refers to the corners or the hem or the tassels of somebody's talit. The corded tassels are the wings of the garment. In fact, back in Numbers 15, when I described to you the way God said that they are to make that garment, in chapter 15 in Numbers, you may remember I said, on the corners it said, you shall put these tassels. Well, the word in Hebrew for corners, back in Numbers, was kanaf, And another way to translate that word, wing. They're the same word. So here's what I just taught you. That the Jewish scriptures told Israel that when the Messiah appeared, he would have healing in the tassels of the hem of his garment. That's what Malachi said. And that's where faith now comes into the picture in Matthew 14. The crowd is there begging Jesus for healing, but he's withholding it. But there are those within the crowd who have faith in him as Messiah. And they remember the prophecy of Malachi. And they don't let Christ's lack of desire to heal the masses stop them. They say, if this is the Messiah, then I know what Malachi told me. He's got healing in his wings. Can I just touch your wings? That is to say, can I touch the hem of your garment, please? I know that if I do that, I will be healed. And so they reach out, they touch, and they are healed. You know, they're taking the prophecy of Malachi very literally. Childlike faith, you might say. And I'm not so sure it was meant that way. In other words, I think it may have just been meant euphemistically. That is to say that he would be endowed with healing. Remember the talit and the tassels represent the character of the individual? So in his character, he would have the power to heal. I think that was actually the true meaning of Malachi 4. But this is what I love about how the Lord responds to childlike faith. Whether they had the perfect interpretation or not is irrelevant. They had the heart to know that God had made a promise to heal and that they would show that faith in the way that they did. God was, I'm sure, smiling in heaven and saying, well, I didn't see it that way myself, but okay. Let me heal you for that. I mean, that's obviously just me. but I really love moments like this in the gospel because they remind us of what true faith is all about. Faith is a conviction in the truth of something. The conviction that something is true. And conviction is a powerful force in someone's life deriving that person's actions. Or at least it should be. It should be. You'll hear this sometimes. People will say, I have faith. Or I'm a person of faith. You hear people like that sometimes? I have faith. They just throw that out. But you know what they don't do? So often they don't complete that sentence. I have faith. It'd be like somebody saying, I trust. You know, if somebody came up to you and said, I trust. What would you say to that person? Wouldn't you say, in what, right? Because you clearly don't expect them to mean, I trust everything and everyone all the time. If you do find that person, I actually have a bridge I'd like to sell them. 
I mean, your point is, you know that that statement makes no sense without an object. The same is true with the word faith. Faith requires an object. Faith does not exist by itself. Faith in what? That's the question. So when somebody says to you, I have faith, I always ask faith in what? Faith by itself, just it itself, is not a cause of anything. Remember, faith is just trusting in something that you think is worthy of that trust. By definition. So the value of having faith is only found in the thing you place it in. Faith in, by itself is meaningless. I mean, for example, can you say you have faith that you will win the lottery? Can you say that? Well, let me tell you, friends, the odds of winning the lottery are infinitesimal. It's been said that the lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math. <laughs> you cannot say, I have faith that I will win the lottery. Because in reality, even if you use those words, you know what you're actually saying? You're saying you wish that you would win the lottery. And friends, wishing is not faith. Wishing is meaningless. Wishing is powerless. And there is a false and powerless form of wishing that is masquerading in the church today as faith. False teachers are out there telling us That if we have faith to receive something we desire from God, our faith alone makes it come true. For example, you've heard people tell you that if you have faith, God will heal you, you will be healed. Or if you have faith, God will make you rich, then He will give you a great harvest. Or something to that effect, right? Friends, that is not biblical theology. That is Disney theology. You are wishing for things and calling it faith. It turns God into a genie, and puts you in the position of rubbing the lamp and controlling God by your desire. I mean, you don't have to read very far in the pages of the Bible to know that is not the Bible, that is not the God we worship, that is not how our relationship with God works. In reality, it's not faith, it's wishing, and it's powerless. Which is why so many people who buy into it ultimately end up being burned and become cynical about religion because what they were told, what they bought, was a bunch of lies, and when it doesn't play out the way they're told it will, they blame God. Usually. I want you to take another look at the men and the women who are in this scenario. They're reaching out for Jesus' hem in the expectation they will be healed. Now let me ask you, what was their faith rooted in? Remember, faith has an object. What was the object here? Were they merely wishing to be healed? And literally grasping at straws? They weren't trusting in their desire. They weren't trusting in their their eagerness. They weren't trusting in some superstition. They weren't thinking that they just had some bright idea and God would honor it with whatever they came up with. No, 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 no. They were acting out of faith, and their faith was in the testimony of the Word of God concerning the Messiah. They believed what Malachi said. They believed that the Messiah would have a healing ministry. And on top of that, they believed Jesus' own testimony as he stood there and said, I am that Messiah. So they took the belief in the word and the belief in Jesus' testimony and the crowd took their faith in that and they made the obvious conclusion. I touch the hem, as Malachi says, I'll be healed. It's not a faith built on wishing. It's not some kind of abstract notion. It's concrete. It's built on the word of God. What they trusted in is this, friends. They trusted that God is not a liar. And when he said what he said, they took his word to the bank. That's what they did. And you know, that's how faith works in the Christian life, generally. It begins by a trusting in the testimony of the Word of God concerning Christ, correctly interpreted, I should add. And then it moves from that trust in the Word into an acting in confidence 
according to that trust, according to that belief. It's not found in substituting your own promises or wishes for what is written here. It's not trusting yourself, it's trusting in God. And I know that seems obvious, maybe obvious to you, I hope it is, but it's not obvious to everyone. I have very energetic conversations with Christians sometimes who have bought into this notion that you can kind of invent whatever it is you think God can do and whatever He will do for you, and if you wish it enough, it'll happen, and they just call that faith. But what is their faith in at that moment? Their faith is actually in their own expectations, their own hopes, their own needs, their own dreams, projected onto God, and here's the worst part, and then it's made a litmus test of God's love. That is to say, if God loves me, he'll do this. Or said another way, if I don't get this, it must mean God doesn't love, like I thought. It's a contrived sort of mindset. So if real faith has a real object that is rooted in something true and dependable, and it is in the case of the Word of God, then what does it mean as we act on that faith? That is to say, even after coming to faith, if you have faith in something but don't act on it, what good was that conviction? If you fail to act according to your faith, James says your faith is dead. And I don't have time to teach all of James to you here, but I will say this. James makes clear when he says that in his letter what he means. Dead in the sense of useless, he says. Useless, being by itself, having no product, having no benefit. It's there. You're saved. But you didn't do anything with your faith. It does you no good. It didn't bring you any good. It didn't bring Christ any glory. We can believe. We can be saved by our faith. And yet, at the same time, we can fail to experience the blessings of faith in this life that come from acting out of that conviction. And if you want proof of that, think back to this moment again. Remember, virtually every Jew who was there in that day, in Gennesaret, would have known the prophecy of Malachi. And I say that because, well, you might think, well, that's kind of hard to believe. I didn't even know this. Well, it's a different world today. In Jesus' day, the Bible, as we understand, the Old Testament as they would see it, that work was studied from childhood, and Jews, for the most part, had memorized most of it. It was all up here. And as somebody would have said Malachi 4.1, to them, they would have known it. They all knew that there would be healing in the wings of the Messiah. They all knew the promise. But do you notice, only those who acted in conviction were healed. There were those, I am confident in this, based on the text, there were those who were there that knew the same prophecy and they didn't reach out. For some reason, they didn't see it worth their while. And speaking of substituting our thinking for what's in God's Word, I think it's time to move on from this. I want to take you to the new part too because it's really a second half to this lesson. Matthew takes us into a new conflict at the beginning of chapter 15, but it continues this same line of thought, that is, of acting in faith. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and he said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your mother and father, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. And by this you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. 
But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. All right, well, conflict between Christ and the Pharisees is nothing new. It's a major theme, as you know, here and in all the Gospels. And the conflicts usually center on the same basic problem. And that problem is the Mishnah. Now, from months back here, you may remember me teaching a lot on the Mishnah at a certain point in our study. And I don't want to go through all that again. Let me just give you the highlight. The Mishnah was the rabbi's rule book of Jesus' day. It consisted of rabbinical commentary and regulations that had developed over years, rabbis inventing these rules. They, they covered about every aspect of Jewish life that you can imagine. And Jews, in general, were expected to follow the, the book, follow these rules that the rabbis had invented, follow the Mishnah, like they might follow Scripture. And in fact, by the time of Jesus' day, the Mishnah was actually more important to Jews in general than the Bible was. In fact, even though the Mishnah wasn't Scripture... The Jews felt that it was, and by Jesus' day, you could get into more trouble by violating the Mishnah than you could the Bible. But because it's not Scripture, Jesus pretty much ignored it. He did nothing it required. He cared nothing of it. He he completely ignored it, as, as he should, because it had nothing to do with what God wanted. But as he did that, he was undermining the rabbi's source of power over the people. And when his own disciples followed Jesus doing the same, it infuriated these rabbis. Because they saw the potential that if this caught on, everyone would ignore the Mishnah. And if they did, that meant you don't need Pharisees. So we've seen this conflict already. There were conflicts earlier in this gospel over things like fasting. Remember all this, uh, the rules over the Sabbath that we talked about uh, a while back? That's already come and gone. Well, now you get into the next kind of Mishnah fight, which is over washings. And next to the Sabbath, there were more rules on washings than anything else in Jewish life. The law of Moses did call for certain ritual washing to be done under certain circumstances. But what the Mishnah did was take those basic needs of the law and put them in the whole new stratosphere. Much, much more uh, uh, regulation about it. Mark explains how this happened at a point in his gospel. I'm just going to read a couple verses of helpful background. In Mark 7, 3, Mark says this, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come into the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as washings of cups and pitchers and copper pots. That's Mark's background for us. He says these guys were so scrupulous about washing. And the washing usually involved up to the elbows. You know, you might wash your hands before your, your meal, but that, that's nothing like what they did. They would go to an elaborate process, and they didn't just wash themselves. They washed all the pots. They washed all the pans. I mean, it was, it was just never-ending for them. And if you notice, Mark says that it was a ritual according to the tradition of the elders. That is not commanded by God, but handed down by men. That phrase, the tradition of the elders, that is code in the New Testament for the Mishnah. That's the New Testament way of describing the Mishnah, the tradition of the elders. And Mark says, this is what they were following. Rules that they invented. Worthless burdens they put on themselves, calling it from God. And that's why Jesus paid no regard to it. He could not care less how many stupid rules they invented for their own sake. None of it was binding on him. Moreover, none of it was binding on anyone, except those who decided to buy into it, which was most of Jewish culture in the day. Verse 2 of Matthew 15, the Pharisees come to Jesus with this concern, and they say, why are your disciples being allowed to break the tradition of the elders? 
That is to say, why aren't you following the Mishnah? And Jesus smartly avoids getting trapped into this conversation. You notice he doesn't answer the question. What he does instead is he poses his own question. Verse 3, he says, why are you violating the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? What he's referring to here is the way in which Pharisees elevated the Mishnah above the Bible. They said the Mishnah rules were more important than even Scripture. And therefore, they viewed violations of the Mishnah more seriously. You want proof of that? Well, consider this. The Pharisees lived in Jerusalem. We're in Gennesaret. That's a three-day walk. These guys have walked three days to find Jesus so they can accuse him of violating the Mishnah. That's their biggest concern right now. They hated those who violated it. And Jesus tells them, you're honoring your own rules while willfully violating God's rules. And in verse 4, he gives them the example of honoring your father and mother. He takes the fourth commandment and he says, here's an example, guys. You have rules that tell you you're allowed to violate this commandment. And what he's speaking about here is in the fourth law, the fourth commandment, God says, honor your mother and your father. And in the honoring of our parents, there is implicitly included in that the expectation that you would care for them when they need you to particularly as they get elderly and as they reach the end of their life, the biblical view of honoring means that you support them if you need to, financially or otherwise. You help them. You don't abandon your parents. You're there until they are gone if they need you. And Jewish culture understood this. Jewish culture recognized the need to care for parents as a part of honoring them in their later years. And it's no different today, for that matter. But Pharisees, friends, were lovers of money. We're told that repeatedly in the Gospels. Lovers of money. So, out of a desire to hold on to their wealth, they had to find some creative way in which they could avoid caring for their parents when they needed money, and yet not be guilty of breaking any laws. And so, their, their solution was classic Pharisaic thinking. They created a rule for themselves that prohibited Pharisees from giving money to non-Pharisees. That was a rule that they said in their Mishnah they had to follow. And so verse 5, Christ actually refers to this rule by quoting the Mishnah, saying that they would tell people, the Pharisees would tell people, that our resources were given to God. What he's talking about here is a rule called the Korban. In Hebrew, the word Korban just means uh, an offering or a dedication. And there was a rule in rabbinical law in the Mishnah called the Korban, which said this, it said, well, let me just read you Mark. Mark 7, 9 actually gives us the background on the Korban. Mark 7, 9. Jesus was saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Korban. That is to say, it is given to God. And I'm no longer permitted to do anything for father or mother. So the Pharisees had declared that they and everything they own was korban, meaning that it was set apart, it was dedicated for God. And since it was dedicated for God, what they had, they could not give to anything other than to God. So in other words, the Pharisees, their logic went like this. They could keep their wealth. I mean, they needed it, they could keep it. But if they gave it away, they could only give it to the temple. That was their rule. 
And any time they had a, a need come their way, some financial obligation, a parent who needed money, a friend who needed money, uh, the poor who was begging at their feet, they could just look at those people and they could say, I'm so sorry, Corban. I can't give you any money. I'm sorry. It's a rule. I mean, you know, it's God. I've got to give my money to God. I can't give it to just anyone. And that allowed them to hold on to their money. Their hands were tied. How convenient that was. And how hypocritical that was. Because you know what? God doesn't need your money. What is money for? Who uses money? Only people. God doesn't use money. Money is not for God. Money is for people, right? So when the Lord says to us, give money in any context, wherever that might be, and don't get nervous, this isn't a tithing lesson. When you give money, it doesn't float up to heaven, right? It's not getting deposited in some heavenly bank account. Where is it actually going? It's going to another human being. Right, And so when we say that we are giving to God with our money, what we actually mean is we are sharing our money with other people, whether in the church or in some other place. But what we mean is we're giving it to God in the sense that it's going to be put to work in furthering the purposes of God through that connection, whatever it may be, missionary, uh, a church person or a church need or some other you know, ministry, whatever. Right? We're giving it to God in that sense. Okay, so when a Pharisee said, I can't honor my parents because I have to give my money to God, he's being a complete hypocrite because what he's saying is, out of greed, I refuse to give my money to anyone because it's for God. It's an exact opposite. And Jesus points it out. Notice in verse 7, he says, you're a hypocrite. And as a result, he says, you're fulfilling the prophet Isaiah when he spoke about this problem in Isaiah, uh, I mean, in Israel. He quotes Isaiah 29, 13. And let me just read you what Isaiah says at that point. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. You've heard the term lip service, right? Did you know that was invented in the Bible? That came out of Isaiah. Lip service. That is the Lord's term for hypocrisy. Because hypocrisy is serving God with your words, but not with your deeds. And that's what Israel was doing. The Jewish people favored this particular form of hypocrisy. And by that I mean this. They favored traditions over the word of God. It was hypocrisy. It was lip service. Because what it involved was claiming to be obedient. Because they followed their rules. But at the same time, it gave them license to sin. Because these rules let them ignore other rules. God's rules. They changed the rules to suit their selfish, sinful desires, and then they called it obedience. Meanwhile, they ignored the commandments that God gave them. The Pharisees may have fooled people, or themselves for that matter, with their little game here, but they didn't fool God. And Jesus points that out. He wasn't being fooled here. And it's really easy for all of us to fall into this trap. Pharisees are you know, justifiably the ones we throw sticks at when we look at the Gospels. But you know, this is something we can all do. That is to say, we can all take the Word of God and put it aside to do other things instead because we like the other things more. You know, obeying the Word of God, it's not easy. The power to do it is not your own, so in that sense, it's not a hard thing. It's something God works in you. But the the simple things that are said in the Word, they can be hard. They can really cut to the quick. They can ask you to do things you're just not inclined to do. It requires you crucify your flesh. Jesus says. And by the way, your flesh hates it when you do that. 
The Bible says our flesh is opposed to God in every way. That is, your flesh literally will want the opposite of whatever God says at any time. Paul says in Romans that until he knew that the Bible says thou shalt not covet, he didn't really think much about coveting. But as soon as he learned that God says don't covet, all of a sudden his body said, let's start coveting, Paul. Because your body, your flesh, as the Bible would call it, is literally programmed to hate God and do the opposite of God at all times. All times. Even the believer. Your flesh is not your friend. That's why you leave it one day, and hallelujah when it's gone. Right? So your flesh is is an enemy of God in that sense. And your pride, which comes out of your flesh, is continually seeking ways to get around the rules that are asking you to crucify the flesh. But here's the thing. Your pride doesn't want to have to live with the conviction that comes out of breaking rules. So what you tell yourself in some form is that you're not actually breaking them. So if somebody tells you, for example, that there's a way for your flesh to get what it wants while still obeying God, then you're all ears for that. We all are. Tell me more, please. Jesus says, I have to honor the marriage bed. But then someone else says, well, you can sleep with your girlfriend and still be a good Christian. I'm like, tell me more. That sounds like a really good deal. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. But then someone else says, yeah, you can have earthly riches. You can pursue earthly riches and you'll also get heavenly riches. Sounds good. Let's try that. Jesus says, you can have his grace and forgiveness for all of your sins, but then something inside you says, I'm going to judge others for their sins, and I'm going to hold it against them. You see how that works? Your spirit knows what is right because you have the Lord living in you, and he's teaching you what's right, and the word is there to show you what's right. But you got the flesh sitting over here. It's literally the, the angel and the devil on your shoulder. Paul says in Romans 7, it's a war within you. And that, that war is this battle between... The mind and the spirit that knows what to do and the flesh that never will do it. Not voluntarily. And if someone gives you a way to get both, that is, the thought that you're doing the right thing, while not actually having to do the right thing, that's where we love to go. That's human nature. Pharisees made a living doing that. But it's hypocrisy. It's living in the flesh rather than by walking in the spirit. It's practicing evil and calling it good. And it's how the enemy will tempt us into self-righteousness and away from sanctification. We become comfortable judging behavior according to our own rules so we don't have to consider the reality of our own sin. Pharisaic thinking. There's another word for this kind of thing. We know the word hypocrisy, but did you know this is also legalism? Now, you've all heard the term legalism, I'm sure, right? But did you realize that there is this connection between legalistic thinking... And hypocrisy. Legalism, to just define it, is the process of establishing rules for ourselves and for others that God himself did not place on us. That's legalism. And legalism helps us feel more holy. Helps us feel more pious, right? It's because we can look at all these rules that we've adopted in our life and we can tell ourselves, my following of all these rules is proof of my righteousness. It's how we measure ourselves. But here's the reality, and this is generally true, and I challenge you to think carefully about this. Legalism is actually an attempt to avoid obeying the Word of God. Now, those who are legalistic would never think like that. They'd never agree to that statement. They see it exactly the opposite. But this is how well we lie to ourselves. 
We tell ourselves that our scrupulous rule-keeping is how we obey God. But what we're actually doing is a bait-and-switch. What do I mean by that? Well, legalism substitutes our rules for the commandments of God. Why? Because the rules you will invent for yourself will always be easier to keep than the one God puts in front of you in the Word of God. That's why you invented them. Because they are favorable to you. They make you look good. You know, people who who hate alcohol, for example, will make the rule for others that you shouldn't drink alcohol. How convenient for them. They'll never fail at that. Or put some other standard in there, some other thing that has become a popular thing for someone to dislike. When you do a legalistic mindset, when you move down that road, what you do is invent rules that God himself has not given us so that as you follow those, you can safely ignore the ones he has given us because those are the ones that actually hit you at where it hurts. They're actually the ones that tell you to change your behavior. They're the ones that actually come at you in ways that aren't healthy. So meaningless, obscure rules will become, in our mind, equivalent to Scripture and ultimately, for some people, greater than scripture. Now you see that? You've got Pharisees in history that did this, and we look at them and we think, what foolish men they were. But if we're not careful, legalism is our version of the same thing. And it is also hypocrisy. When you think like this, you tend to be an inspector. You go around telling other people about their rules, they expect them to follow your rules, you hold them accountable if they don't follow your rules. Meanwhile, all that time and energy you're spending on other people, what you're not doing is paying attention to your own sanctification according to God's rules. And I call these kinds of Christians splinter inspectors. They're splinter inspectors. They're preoccupied with fixing everyone else's sins while they ignore the logs projecting out of their face. It allows them to feel more holy, but actually it makes them less holy. Rather than taking every word and thought and deed captive to their obedience to Christ, what they do is say to themselves, I'm pretty good already because I don't, follow, I, I don't break all of these rules. And that what they've done effectively is they've moved the goalposts, you know the old saying, moving the goalposts, they've moved the goalposts closer to themselves so they can kick it easier and they call themselves a winner. Jesus calls it what it is, lip service. He commands the crowd to do better. Verse 10, the, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. Here's what he just did. He challenges the crowd. He says, it's not what goes in you, it's what comes out of you that makes you a sinner. This is a fundamental spiritual truth. He just happens to be using an example of dietary rules in order to make the point. But here's the truth. First of all, the law that God gave Israel, you probably know this, it had dietary restrictions, pretty severe ones, on what Israel could eat. And the point in all of that was to unite them and ultimately isolate them from the rest of the nations by all of these odd eating habits so that Israel would not blend into the rest of the world. They would stand apart. And then along the way, it would teach Israel basic concepts of sin. Sin separates us from God. And if we are unclean or unholy, we cannot have fellowship with God. And it was part of that whole teaching going back to the tabernacle. But then come along the Pharisees and the Mishnah. And what they said was those laws were not supposed to be teaching us. They were actually a means to righteousness, to self-righteousness. No longer were they just a picture of sin and holiness. Now they're actually the means thereof. That is to say, they were finding themselves more holy by taking bad things and not letting them come in their mouth, not letting shrimp get in their mouth, not letting pork get in their mouth. That made them more holy, they said. 
Conversely, if you ate those things, you became unholy. And what Jesus says is, you've got it all wrong. It's not what you put in your mouth that makes you righteous or unrighteous. It's what comes out, and here's what he means by that, and this is the principle. That is to say, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are inherently unrighteous. We are born that way. From the womb, we are sinners in corrupt bodies. Evil is present in our hearts from the very first breath we take. We cannot fix that on our own. Nothing you put in your mouth is going to make you holy when you start already sinful. And therefore, there's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. There's no rule. There is no list of do's and don'ts. You can't do enough to fix a birth defect that you have from the moment you came into life. A spiritual birth defect. We all have it. It's called sin. And as long as your heart is sinful, what it produces in the members of your body is sinful products of one kind or another. And so guarding what goes in your body is useless. It's literally guarding the barn door after the horse is already out. You're doing yourself no good. And so for the legalistic person among us, whoever that might be, if you're out there inventing new rules for yourself, let me just take that burden away from you right now, friend. It's pointless. You're too late. You should have been inventing those rules before you were born. And then followed them perfectly ever since. Right? You're not fixing anything. The Word of God teaches that the only way to please God is to accept by faith... God's gift of righteousness found in Christ. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. He's the only one who didn't break any rules. He's the only one who pleased God as a result of his rule keeping. And when you put your faith in him, the Bible says that God credits us with his righteousness. Now here's where the stupidity of legalism really comes to the foreground. If everyone in here is already 100% righteous before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness given to you through your faith, which is the gospel. How much more righteous are you getting when you follow your own rule? How much better can you do than 100%? You get it? You are 100% righteous, not for your own sake, but because you've received that from Christ by faith. Now, I grant you that you're not living righteously, neither am I. We have that sin problem I just talked about, our flesh. What I'm saying, though, is your entry into heaven, your pleasing of God is based on Christ's righteousness, not your own. You got His already. It's perfect. How much better can you do? So when you run rules up other people's you know, way of doing things, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you're not making anybody more righteous. You're certainly not making yourself more righteous. All you're doing is burdening already righteous people with laws that do no good to them. Meanwhile, you're knocking them around the head with that log sticking out of your own eye. You ought to turn that inspection inwardly for the rest of your life on earth and ask Christ, what do I do with what you've given me in my walk to please you more? Not to earn anything, not to reach heaven, but to be a better witness of you now. The Pharisees didn't understand that at all. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't understand that either because of, I guess, no one's taught them. Thank you, Christ, that you gave us mercy and grace on the basis of faith alone and your righteousness as a result because I couldn't have done it any other way. And now, Christ, forgive us for trying to substitute our own rules and righteousness instead of relying on yours. I hope that helps you understand why we say we have freedom in Christ. We rest in Christ. We don't have to follow law. It doesn't mean we have license to sin. But what it says is the rules have already been written. 
Just stay with these. You'll be fine. You don't need new ones. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. For those in this room, Father, who may not have received it, for they have not put their faith in you. Perhaps no one explained to them that grace is the only means by which we come to God. Perhaps that is new to someone tonight. Father, if that's new for someone in this room tonight, may it be a life-changing moment for them. The moment when the pursuit of righteousness in their own strength is replaced by a resting in yours. That if they just confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that He was raised from the dead, they shall be saved and they would be content in that and confident in that for the Word declares that and that their faith would be in the the rooted Word that gives us that truth. And for the rest of us, Father, for whom this truth is already well known and it is in our hearts and we are children by faith, forgive us, Father, when we have placed on others burdens that we ourselves don't keep or when we have made our rules more important than your guidance and your word. Help us to show more grace to each other in their failings as you have done in ours. And as we grow more like you in following your word, Father, don't let it turn us into men and women who are haughty and prideful in that accomplishment as if we did it. Let it make us more humble, rather, and more dependent on your righteousness. For the more we see ourselves truly, the more we realize we need you wholly. And let us be a church in which that is the way we preach and live. We pray this in Jesus' name.